So if you would take your copy of God's Word and find Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to be reading the last three verses of Hebrews chapter 4 in just a moment. You know, I'm getting to that stage in life where I begin to evaluate most everything in light of a legacy. And here's what I would like to leave at Grace when I'm done here. And who knows when that'll be? Uh, next month, next year, next decade. I don't know. When, when, when will that be? I don't know. But here's what it is that I would like to leave at Grace. I, I would like to leave some folk who are more equipped to properly handle, understand, and teach God's Word. I'd like to leave folk that can rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul says. And because of that reason, I know I give you a lot of technical stuff that is really against the norm for pastors to be given from the pulpit. You know, we're taught in seminary, dumb everything down. Do not use any words that are above a fifth grade vocabulary. I mean, really, seminary professors today think y'all are, are, are ignorant. Did you know that? And they teach us to preach as if we're preaching to ignorant people. And I understand there's some validity to that. But look, you can't grow if folk continue to treat you like a child. You know what I'm saying? So I really don't apologize in giving you some technical stuff because it all helps the end game of equipping you to be able to better handle God's Word. So let me give you some of that stuff today. First, in structure, notice what it is that our friend Apollos says. And my goodness, this is a bright guy. And you really do have to be on your horse to stay up with a writer like this. Uh, not only is he inspired by the Spirit, but man, just a, a, a natural, um, brilliant mind uh, behind the writing of Hebrews. So notice, I want to point out, number one, the main two verbs here. Because if you can train your mind to begin to see the main verbs in a passage, then you're on the way to putting that scripture in a headlock and squeezing the juice out of it. So here we go. Look with me in verse 14. Here's what he does. He opens with therefore, which we're going to set the context in just a minute, hooks us back to what he's just come from. But everything in between the commas, in front of the word since and after the phrase Son of God, that is just a phrase, a, a, a dependent phrase. So here's the main sentence. Therefore... Let us hold fast our confession. Underline this main verb. Let us hold fast. Underline that. Alright, now with me in verse number 16 again. Therefore, and underline this main verb. Let us draw near. So no matter what we do with this passage, we know that it's going to revolve around these two main and most weighty verbs. And they're pretty easy to see. Because in the original, they're in the subjunctive mood translated by let us. So, let's read this and then we'll do a little bit more. Therefore, Apollos says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that, there's our purpose clause, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Well, we've already let our major two verbs basically determine our outline. So we know verses uh, 14 and 15 are kind of coupled together, and then verse 15, because that's where our other weighty verb is. Now let's go back to the therefore, because really to follow Apollos, I think the key to understanding Hebrews is being able to set one paragraph in context with the paragraph that just came before it and the one that came after it. And if we can connect the dots, if we can understand the connection between what he's saying in this paragraph and what he has just said in the paragraph preceding, then we will be able to pretty accurately summarize the CIT, which is the central idea of the text or the heart of the passage. So notice what it, what it is that he does in this context. Boy, context, context, context. By the way, the larger context of the book of Hebrews is Apollos is writing to a group of believers who are struggling. I mean, they are struggling because they live in a hostile world. They are being persecuted. They are being ridiculed. They are being, uh, they are being attacked by the forces of darkness in the society in which they live. And some of those believers are beginning to think this, Dr. John. They're beginning to think, man, is this really worth it? Now look, they're not wanting to give up on God, but they're just simply thinking this. How about if I just quit standing up for Jesus? How about if I just quit being so verbal and vocal for Jesus? How about if I just kind of pulled out of church? Maybe that would help things be a little bit better. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been there. Have you ever been to the point where you said, is this church thing really worth it? I mean, would my life not be a little bit easier if I could just let this church thing go? But you see, the difference between us and them is they were being persecuted by unbelievers. Most of the time in our modern culture, we don't experience pressure from the outside. All of our problems seem to come from within. It's other believers, you know, that, that tend to drive us sometimes or, or, or at least get us to thinking, wouldn't my life not be better if I didn't have to put up with that garbage? You know, I, I've got to be honest with you. I have never been persecuted by an atheist. I haven't. But son, I've been attacked by fellow pastors for what I believe as opposed to what they believe. So I really get this thing about questioning, is this really worth it? Could I not just unplug from church and be better off? And you know, I think to some extent, everybody who is here today has been there. You've thought that. You may have taken a step down that road. And you see, that's one of the things that Grace Church wants to prevent at all costs. By golly, we don't want to be that typical church where your greatest problems are not from the outside but on the inside. We've all had a bait of that, have we not? Uh, and, and we're beyond that. And, and, and we don't want to be... Uh, we're not going to shoot at other believers and we really don't like it when other churches shoot at us. By golly, we are not enemies. If, we're, if, we, if we are brothers, we're not enemies, huh? So that is the immediate context. I mean, that is the larger context, but look at the immediate context here in this, in this, 
uh, in this, to this passage. Look at verse number 13. Uh, yeah, verse number 13. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now look with me again in, in uh, verse number 12. He says, the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, they were thinking, would it not be easier for me to unplug from church? See, this author does the same thing that Jesus did in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He moves sin back from the outward action to the internal thought and motivation of the heart. And you see, that's where it all begins, is it not? It normally begins with a thought. And if we dwell on that thought, it'll become a preoccupation. And before long, we'll be acting on the motives and the intentions and the thoughts of the heart. You know, there are very few people who just fall into sin. They don't. They've been thinking about it for a while. They've been nursing it. They've been cuddling up to the idea in their mind and in their heart. And then they fall into it. Uh, the outward action follows the inward thought. So notice how he, how he puts this thought stuff together. Now look, y'all been thinking about doing this, and now all of a sudden the Word of God is judging your thoughts and your motives. You are laid bare before Him. Hey, does the fact that you are naked and there's nothing hidden from the eye of God, does that make you a little bit uncomfortable? Boy, it should, should it not? Should make us a little bit anxious. Now, here's the context. Here's what happens most of the time when our Sunday mask is ripped off of us. When our Sunday mask is ripped off and we can no longer fake who we are, but other folk know who we are, and most importantly, God knows who we are, we normally end up being so embarrassed until our inclination is to run. Well, I can't go back to that church because... See what I'm saying? So that's the context that this guy's right. We've been exposed by God's Word. He sees who we are. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So this next paragraph deals with this subject. Here it is. God's best even when we've been bad. So you had some bad thoughts. So you had a bad day. The Word of God exposes you. You're open. You're naked before His sight. He sees who you are. Sometimes that makes people run. It really does. That's our first inclination is to get the heck out of here. Right? Now this writer comes along and he says, Oh, no, no, no. Don't do that. Don't give up. Don't break camp and run just because now you're having to deal with the true you. But he says, let's experience God's best even when we've been bad. Hey, who hadn't been bad? And I'm not just talking about this week. I'm talking about in the past 10 minutes. Who hadn't been bad? Huh? <laughs> so here we go. Let's see what this author says that will help us about God's best even when we've been bad. Notice what he says, and let's form it around this first major verb that we've already identified. 
God's best when we've been bad. We experience God's best when we hold our common, our common declaration. Look what he says in verse number 14. Let us hold fast our confession. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, take what it is that we believe and at all costs you cling to it in tough times. Now notice there are several things that this author does here. Notice what he does. He says, let's hold fast. He don't say, hold fast your confession, singular. He says, hold fast our confession. You see, here's what it is that we confess. Here's what it is we believe. And that word uh, uh, confession translates to Greek that, that literally means same words. Same words. But here's our confession. Our confession is what the body of Christ has believed since the very inception of Christianity. What have we held as the basic, irreducible content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold on to that. So here's what our confession must be. Our confession, number one, must be biblical. Our confession, number two, must be historical. And our confession, number three, must be something that is commonly held by the church. Now, did you hear all three of those? They must be biblical because, number one, that's the source of our doctrine and faith. Number two, it must be historical. This is what the church has believed since the foundation of the church at Pentecost. And number three is something that all of us together hold. And you see, here's, here's what's going on today. There's a lot of stuff that a lot of folk believe that was just invented by some charlatan a hundred years ago. And there's a problem with that. That is not our common declaration. And all of these folk today who claim to be prophets and getting a new word, friend, that cuts against the spirit of the New Testament because God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ and if it's a new word, why in the world would the God who loves us enough to send His Son to die for us on Calvary's cross hide it from the church for the first 2,000 years of her existence? And He hadn't done it. It's a common confession. So why does this, this inspired writer tell this church and these people who are considering bolting and the thought is already in their heart, the seed has already been planted, why does he tell us to hold fast our confession? Well, because he has a, he has a presupposition here. This is his presupposition. The author's presupposition is this, is that belief shapes character. What you believe determines who you are. And you see, what we believe will either give us the fortitude to stand or it will not pass the test and we'll bolt because we're not believing the right stuff. So his presupposition is this. Belief shapes character. So, you know, I've, I've always maintained this. As a matter of fact, in my final doctoral project, here was a lot of, of what I spilt a lot of ink on. 
that all of our ethical shortcomings are really from doctrinal missteps. Our misbehavior is because we are misbelieving. You believe the right stuff and son, it holds you in the middle of the road because it shapes your character. It forges you in the image of God. What a person believes, hear me, is ultimately important. Ultimately important. You change what you believe and you become a different person. You change your core convictions and you begin to act very differently. So the writer is saying, if you want to overcome this tendency to run, he says, here's what you need to do. You need to preach the good old-fashioned gospel to yourself every day. And that's what he tells them. Let's hold forth our confession. Upon these truths the church was founded. Upon these truths men have stood being tied to a stake while a fire was lit and said, Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. So notice this author's presupposition. Number one, that belief shapes character. But notice the author's position. His position is that belief has objective content. See, because this is what he's getting at right here. He said, hold forth your confession. So not only does he, does he tell us that, or, or presuppose that belief shapes our character, but he's also going to tell us what the proper belief is. So here's what he tells us. Here's the content of our belief. Here's what the church has held as sacred and indispensable and irreducible gospel elements known as the kerygma since its inception at Pentecost. Notice what he does. He identifies it for us right here in these verses. Check out what he says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, number one, Jesus is our mediator. He's our mediator. That's what the high priest was, was it not? I mean, he went behind the veil on a yearly basis to make atonement for his sin and for the sins of the people. And he spoke to God on behalf of the people. And notice what this author says. This author says, we have a great high priest. Look, he supersedes anything that Moses and Aaron ever put forth in history. And this word great, when you see this word great in the Bible, it's not as we use it today. I mean, we use it like this. Something's good, that's real good. But if it's a little bit better than good, it's great. And you see, that's not how it works in theological categories. In theological categories, the greatness of God refers to His incomprehensibility. It's when your mind swoons because your finite mind can't grasp a hole of a thumbnail of the infinite. Like things like this. Like God is eternal. He has no beginning and He has no end. Let your mind try to wrap around God for a minute now. He don't have a beginning and He doesn't have an end. You see, that's the greatness of God. And that's how this writer describes our mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mediator. So here's what happens. The Word of God lays you naked. All of a sudden you see ugliness in your heart. That ugliness probably makes you want to run and hide from yourself, from other people, and most of all from God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They ran and they 
hid themselves. That's why so many people today have this tendency to run from church when they begin to see who they are and know that God knows who they are. And look, my goodness, we got to be transparent with one another enough that when you find out something that's not flattering about me that I don't run and hide. And when, God forbid, we know something not flattering about you, you don't run and hide. Because here's how you deal with it. Rather than running and hiding, you know what you do? You go to your mediator. Do you see how that affects the way you live now? Because here's the content of our gospel. Jesus is our mediator. So when the Word of God exposes something in us that we don't necessarily like, God doesn't like, we know that other people don't like, we don't run away, we run to Him. Because He's our mediator. And He takes care of it. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to take care of it. So that affects how we live. That affects how we act. That affects how we behave. If we really have latched on to the truth that Jesus is our mediator. So he tells us, let us hold on to this common confession. Hey, they ain't none of us perfect, right? Thank God we have a great high priest who is our mediator. I mean, that's all there is to it. Aren't you glad that you don't have to go to a confessional and talk to some guy wearing a shirt collar backwards? Huh? <laughs> My goodness. We've got a great mediator who has the ability to take care of our shortcomings right here, right now. Check out number two. What is the content of our declaration? Number one, that Jesus is our mediator. But number two, look what he says in verse 14. We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Let me stop there for a minute. See, this, is a, this guy knows the Old Testament like the back of his hands. Do you know what the Aaronic priesthood passed through? Here's what the Bible says. They passed through the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where God, where the presence of God met with him. Our great high priest didn't pass through a veil under a tent in the woods. Our high priest, son, passed through the heavens. And he went all the way into the unmitigated presence of the Father in the throne room. That's where he is. You see, he's our intercessor. But I want you to know he's also our insider. He is our man on the inside. And that's exactly what this writer points out next because not only is Jesus our mediator, but Jesus was completely man. Look what he says. He points this out in several ways uh, in, this, in this passage. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's the incarnation. But look again in verse number 14. Verse 14, he uses this word, Jesus. That word is always a reference to the historical figure in his full humanity. You know why it is why we can have our sins forgiven? Because we have somebody on the inside who is, who is sympathetic with us. That's, what, that, that, that's why it was so necessary for him to be a man. Number one is because he's sympathetic with us. Now look, here's why he's sympathetic. Because he experienced the fullness of temptation 
beyond what you and I experienced. I mean, stop and think about it. Jesus was the most vivacious human personality to ever live on this planet. You know why? Because he was completely came without any hereditary sin. I mean, he was pure. He was the perfect expression of what God wanted man to be. Therefore, since he was wider in his personality than we ever will be, he was a whole much larger target for the devil, was he not? I mean, just think about it. As puny as I am, the devil shoots pretty straight. But think about the fullness of the temptation that Jesus experienced and yet resisted it. Hey, who do you think knows the most about temptation? The one who has experienced a little bit of it and then fell and gave into it? Or the one who experienced the full force of it and never flinched? And that's why it says he's sympathetic. Hey, here's the thing. I can promise you Jesus knows what you're going through. Because he, he's experienced it. He's sympathetic with you. He is our man on the inside. And in this case, it doesn't matter what you know. It does matter who you know. That's exactly right. Check out number next. Not only was he completely man, he was sympathetic, but he was also without sin. Here's what the writer says. The writer says, One who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He understands the temptation, but friend, let me tell you one thing he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand our capitulation to it because he never experienced that. He never did that. He doesn't sympathize with the sin. He sympathizes with the temptation. And notice what it is that this writer says just a few verses back in Hebrews chapter number 2, verse number 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he, he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hey, he knows where you are. He knows what you're experiencing. And all you've got to do is call him and he'll come and help you. It's like, you know, it's kind of cliche, but... It's like the old pastor once said. Somebody asked him, what does he do when temptation comes and knocks at his door? He says, I just call Jesus and let him answer it. And that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 is saying. You know, here's the idea. Anytime we fall to temptation, it's because we wanted to. Because you got options. I've got options. When we fall, the only thing we can say is in that moment, we love the idea of the sin more than we love the idea of the Savior coming and getting us out of it. Because by golly, He can do it. He will come to the aid of those who are tempted. Oh, He sympathizes with the temptation. He does not sympathize with the sin because He Himself is sinless. Check out number next. We've got to run. Not only is, is, is Jesus our mediator, not only is he completely man, but Jesus is our Messiah. He uses several words here, but notice this phrase, this entire phrase, Jesus, his humanity, the Son of God, his deity, passing through the heavens, our high priest. He's saying that Jesus is our Messiah. And you know I'm getting this question more and more these days. And this is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. 
It's known as Christocentricity. It means that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. And you know what? I get this question uh, more than I ever thought I would in my lifetime today from folk on the outside. And it comes from my pluralistic society. You mean tell me that Muslims are going to hell? I'm telling you unless they repent and place their faith in Christ, they're going to hell. You mean to tell me that Jehovah's Witnesses are going to hell? I mean to tell you that if I'm going to hold on to the content of the gospel and believe it, then I'm telling you unless they repent and place their faith in Christ, they're going to hell. Do you believe that Hindus are going to hell? Pastor Richie, do you know how many people there are outside the scope of the gospel? Yes, I do. That's why our church is a sending church. We're trying to get this life-saving, soul-saving message to them. What are you doing about it? Huh? I mean, he is our Messiah. God doesn't have a plan B. I mean, do you think God would let his son die on Calvary's cross if there was another way? I think not. So notice, he gives us the content of the gospel, and here's what he says. If you're thinking of Bolton, you better preach this gospel message to yourself very loudly every day. And I hear Dr. John say this on more than one occasion. We must preach the gospel to ourselves. Again, somebody asked an old-time preacher one time, said, Preacher, why do you preach so much? Ain't nobody listening to you. You ain't going to change nobody. And the old preacher said, I don't preach to change them. I preach so they don't change me. We've got to hear the content. And that's what this writer tells us because content determines character. Check out what he says now. Here's where it really gets good. Verse number 15. Number one, experiencing God's best when we've been bad. Number one, we do that when we hold our common confession. But number two, we experience God's best when we heed clear directions. Because here's where he's going to give us the directions. What do we do now that we're holding on to this common confession and that our character has been forged into the image of Christ? What do we do? Well, he tells us the first thing that we're to do is to close the distance. Close the distance. Look, look with me in verse number 15. Therefore, let us draw near. And what are we closing the distance to? We're closing the distance between us and the throne of grace and the God of grace who sits on the throne of grace. Now, you know, that's a unique way to describe the throne, is it not? Because most of the time when we think of a throne, what do we think of? We think of judgment, right? There's a king. Yeah, that's right. There's a king on that throne, and he is sovereign. And most of the time when you appear before the magistrate, before the throne, before the bench, it's for judgment, not for grace. But this throne... To those who name the name of Jesus, hear me, who have a great high priest, a mediator, and a Messiah, by golly, that's a throne of grace. Now, can I ask a question to myself and to all of us? What could happen in my life that's so bad that would cause me to want to put distance between me and grace? Why would we do that? There's something broken in our mentality, isn't there? So yeah, so I, 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 I sinned. I've got bad intentions in my heart. I've got bad thoughts in my mind. That should run me or pull me, cause me to draw near to the throne of grace. Now check out what he says happens when we get to the throne of grace. Here's what he says. He says, 
Number one, look with me in verse 13. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Here's the purpose clause underlined so that. So that we may receive mercy. Now check this out. We receive mercy. Now what in the world are we receiving mercy for? Get this, get this. He's not talking about eternal salvation here. If he's talking about eternal salvation, he just turned biblical doctrine upside down on its head. Because if he's talking about eternal salvation, then what he's saying is, you had better come to the throne of grace before you draw your last breath or you're not going to get mercy enough to get in. That's not what he's saying. The entire context of what we've been looking at lately, God's best is not in heaven. It's about God's best for us in this life. Isn't that right? It's about, the, in the Old Testament it was in Canaan. New Testament's in Christ. It's God's best, where God's best is located for us. So here's what he's saying. Here's why we receive mercy. We receive mercy to lighten the discipline. Because here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. If we don't take care of these thoughts and these intentions in our heart, and we allow them to bear fruit and turn into action. Dr. John taught us this morning in Proverbs, He who the Lord loves, He does what? He disciplines. He disciplines. So why in the world would you need mercy when you stand before a throne of grace? You need mercy to lighten the discipline. How many of you ever stood before a judge before? <laughs> what did you want when you stood before that judge? By golly, you wanted mercy. That's right. You throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Mercy, mercy, mercy. I know what the letter of the law says, but let's deal spirit of the law here for a little while, Your Honor. <laughs> right? Mercy. It, it, it's, it's to lessen the penalty, to lessen the discipline in this life because I promise you we keep those intentions in our heart. The next thing coming is discipline. And here's why we draw near to get that mercy. Abraham Lincoln once said, he said, It lightens the stroke to draw near to him who wields the rod. Now stop and think about that. You know when boxers are tired and they're in the ring? Come on, Colin. He knew what, he knew what was coming. Here's what boxers do when they're, in the ring, when they're tired. They ride up next one and they're hitting each other like this. You know why? It don't hurt near as bad to hit like this as it does stand back here. Huh? It doesn't. And Mr. Carroll, here's what my daddy taught me years ago. You're going to understand this as a horseman, as a horseshoer and all that. My daddy used to tell me, son, try not to walk around behind the animal, whether it's a horse or whether it's a cow. But if you have to walk around behind him, here's what you do. You let him know that you're there. You put your hand on his hip and you walk around him so close to him that you're brushing him. It does two things. Number one, it lets the animal know you're there. And number two, if that animal does decide to kick, you had rather be right here when he kicks than you had right here when he kicks. You see what I'm saying? I mean, if you're out here when a horse kicks, you get in the full force and all things going to happen is femurs are going to shatter. If you're standing up here and that cow or that horse kicks, then all he's going to do is give you a little roller coaster ride. Whoop! And it's kind of fun to do it that way. <laughs> when you're 18. <laughs> so here's what we do. We draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy 
Because mercy, hey, look, you keep those intentions in your heart, you keep living outside of God's best, and the discipline is going to be pretty strong. Because you're at arm's length now. I want to be close to him if he's going to discipline me. You hear what I'm saying? I want to be close and let my closeness lighten the stroke. But number next, notice why else we, we draw near to him. We close the distance. Why do we do it? Notice what he says. He says to find grace. Check this out in verse number, uh, verse number 16. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy. I find this interesting. See if you do. We receive mercy, but we find grace. It's different. Now, here's what he said. Here's the original language. The original word, see that word find? Here it is. You're going to know this Greek word. Eureka. Eureka. Did you have to read that story when you were in grammar school about the guy who found something he'd been looking for and he was so excited he hollered, Eureka! I found it. And it has that E and that U on the front of it, which means good, as you know. So we have a good find. It's something that you didn't expect. It's greater than you would have ever thought. It's more than you expected and comprehended. And you find that eureka. You have that eureka moment because this is good. I have found it. But notice what else he says about it. Here's why we do it. We find grace to maximize our development. You see, mercy lightens the discipline, but grace is what develops us. Now, just go ahead and get ready for this, because in grace group this week, we're going to take an excursus. I would have done it today, but I don't have time. And our excursus is going to be compare and contrast grace and mercy from a biblical perspective. What each one of them, hey, they're both good. Hey, Dr. John, they're both hesed. They're both encompassed in that Hebrew word hesed that we can't translate. Both mercy and grace come from that same one Old Testament word. Now check this out. Notice what he says. Uh, here's what he says. He says, fine. Here's the word, eureka. And do you see this word in time? The normal word for time is the word kairos. But guess what he puts up on the front of it? He puts the E and the U. So we have a good find... And guess when we have it? In good time. That's exactly right. When you draw near to the throne of grace, you can't believe what you found. And guess what? You found it in the perfect time in your life when you needed it the most. That's how God is. I wish I had a dime for every time somebody texts me during the week and says, Pastor Richie, Thank you for the word yesterday. It was just what I needed in the exact time for what I'm going through. That's what he's talking about here. That's good timing. God always has perfect timing. He does. But look, look what the key to all of this is. The good find in the good time you find that in close proximity to the throne of grace. Hey, you can't get this living off out there in Never Never Land. It's not going to happen. You can search until you starve to death. You're not going to find it there. You're going to find it in close proximity to him who sits on the throne of grace. Check out number next. I got to run here. 
what are the explicit directions he gives us? Number one, to close the distance. We close the distance between us and the throne of grace. But number two, he says we do it with a conscious decision. Look with me at this word again. Let us, let us, and here's what it means. It means right now, let's make a conscious decision and effort to do this. And here's the truth. Here's, here's, here's your tweet for today. You can wander out of the grace and presence of God, but you will never just wander back into it. You ever notice how that works? If you're not up on your P's and Q's, you will eventually drift. That's what this writer calls it, drift. You will wander aimlessly, and next thing you know, you're way out in the wilderness somewhere. So you can wander out of the presence of God, but watch me. You don't ever just aimlessly wander back into it. It requires a conscious decision. Here's what some of us need to do today. God, today is the day. I'm not going home and praying about this. I'm not putting it off because that's just continuing to wander. A conscious decision is today... I'm closing the distance and today I'm coming back into the presence of the one who sits on the throne of grace. It requires a conscious decision. It's not going to happen. Nobody else can make it for you. It's not going to happen just by happenstance. It requires a conscious decision and effort. Notice number next. Notice what he says. He says, we close the distance with a conscious decision but finally, he says we do it with a confident demeanor. A confident demeanor. Look what he says in verse 16. Let us draw near, and here's the word, with confidence. With confidence. Now, this word, confidence, Katie, it's our, it's our friendly word from Acts. Every time those believers were threatened, as Colin read this morning, they didn't pray, God, just get me out of here. They would always pray, God, give me parousia, give me confidence, give me boldness. And that's the same word that the writer uses. says that's how we come back into the presence of God. Now look, it doesn't mean coming in with our thumbs under our lapel saying, look at me. Ain't I good? Here's what it means. It means we come into His presence. And look, remember, rem remember the opposite. Have you ever noticed that People who are living in sin have a natural tendency to run away from God. And that's what we do. When the Word of God has exposed us and we know that we're sinners and this is the issue that God's calling us to take care of today, our tendency is to run away. And that writer's saying, no, you run too. And the reason you can run to God is because you have a mediator. You have a mediator who has equipped you with the necessary equipment to live in the presence of God. Hey, do you remember those Old Testament priests? You remember when they went into the Holy of Holies? You remember what they tied around their ankle? They tied a rope around his ankle and they put bells on his robe. You know, I remember hunting with a bird dog. We had an old hard-headed bird dog one time. He would get so far out of range, my daddy put a bell on him. And by golly, when that bell quit tingling, we knew we better find him because he was pointed. If the bells ever stopped ringing on the high priest's robe while he was in the Holy of Holies, guess what the outsiders knew? God killed him. That's right. 
Now comes time to use the rope that we tied around the idiot's ankle. Because <laughs> we can't go in there. Because if we go in there, it's going to kill us. I had a professor that described God as the radioactive God. Stop and think about the nuclear reactor on a submarine or one of our aircraft carriers today. 5,000 men on that ship. There may be two that go into that, that reactor room, huh? Huh? And when they go in, they go in with what? The right equipment. And buddy, when they go in that room, here's what they're saying. They're saying, I trust my equipment. My life is in the hands of this equipment. If this equipment fails, I am done. I'm cooked. I'm finished. And you see, that's what he says. We go into God's presence with that kind of confidence. Now, why do we do it? Because we go in His presence, not as sinners who are afraid that if I go into the presence of this holy God, He's going to kill me immediately just with His presence. But we go into His presence knowing that we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I have been made holy and I have been purified. I have been given His robes of righteousness and I can walk into the presence of God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not only survive it, but thrive in God's presence. My goodness. That's how we come into God's presence. God have mercy on us for running from Him. God have mercy on us from coming in sheepishly. He says we are to come into His presence with confidence. Now notice how that happens. We can go in His presence with a confident demeanor because that confidence is granted by the Spirit. Did you hear what Colin read this morning in Acts? Look, that type of confidence don't come from me. I don't have that type of confidence. I've got to rely upon the Spirit's testimony telling me what Christ has done for me, preaching the gospel to me, saying that Christ has given you what it takes to live in the presence of God without immediately being consumed because of His overwhelming holiness. That confidence is granted by the Spirit. But number next, and I'm done, that Spirit gratifies Christ. That confidence gratifies Christ. you know why? Because when you come into the throne room of God with confidence, here's why Christ is gratified. Because He's saying, look at here. Father, I know that sorry sinner. Do you know where I found him years ago? Do you know who he was and what he used to do? But Father, look at here. This blood has been applied to his account. He's now holy and blameless without sin in your sight. And because of what I've done in his life, he is now here in your presence. And Christ stands there and he's just so pleased. Because the only way you got to come into the presence of his Father was based on what he did on your behalf on Calvary's cross. Son, listen. That's why we ought to live in the presence of God. Confidence that's granted by the Spirit and confidence that gratifies our Savior. Because without that, there's no way we could approach Him. Hey, without that, when God's Word exposes you, when you've been bad, 
then you had better head for the hills and you better stay there and pray that the rocks fall on you to cover you from the one who sits on the throne. But by golly, when God's word exposes us as believers and we say, God, thank you for showing me that, I come into your presence through the mediator, Jesus Christ, by the confidence given in the Spirit, and God, would you get that out of me, and would you equip me to be everything that you have saved me to be, and would you allow me to live and experience your best on this planet for your glory? Hey, I don't know where you are today, but here's God's word for you. Draw near to the throne of grace. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts going and coming. And God, there's not a person in this building today that didn't need to hear it because we have all been bad. We confess to you that the thoughts and intentions of our heart are most of the time not holy and not godly. And God, as you expose us, would you allow us to come into your presence through the mediation of Jesus Christ so that we can lighten the stroke of discipline and so that we can be developed into the person that you want us to be for your honor and glory. I pray for that person that's here today that maybe they've been considering running and God today the word preached to them has caused them to turn and go the opposite direction instead of running away from you to run to you. I pray for those that are here today that have never trusted you as Lord and Savior and may today be the day of salvation when you corner them when the blood of Christ is applied to their life. But God, most of all today, may we all, instead of taking a step away, take a giant step towards the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in this hour of need. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.